Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. All right, here we go. Welcome in, everybody. David Summers, and it's another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It is the story of wrestling in America, as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. So now, we step back into the ring, back into time. Let's get wall-to-wall and treetop tall with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller hanging out in the great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. Hey, Ron, how's everything going this afternoon? Oh, man, it's nice, beautiful, nice weather. Been getting a lot of storms, but uh, got to have that. Got to have a little rain in life. So we're getting some of that, but uh, um, we got a nice little temperature. We, it's certainly not uh, humid. So I can't wow. complain, man. <laughs> it's about everything you come to the mountains for. Yeah, exactly, exactly, because we have extreme heat, literally extreme heat, and we've got showers almost every afternoon, which we just went through a pretty good shower, thunderstorm, we'll call it that, because that's what it was, but anyway, so we kind of get the, we get the, the heat side, you're, you're, you're closer to God where you are, Ron. I think that's it. Hey, listen, I got to tell you, every stud cast for a while now, has been a can't miss for fans because so much was happening every week in your life in August, especially 1979. So every episode I'm talking is filled with historic facts, amazing surprises. As the Knoxville war ends its third month and the Gulf coast territory begins a dive to disaster. So your title for this stud cast number three twelve. this is number three twelve. Leaves me with all kind of questions, and I'm sure listeners too. Tennessee shocking heel turn, Alabama's disastrous dive. That's the name of the show. So every episode now, it is for real. It's filled with historic facts, mind-boggling surprises, Ron. Well, geez, Dave, that's, that's, that's such is my life in 1979, <laughs> man. You know? I was always looking over my shoulder to see what was coming next. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's Studcast fans, uh, you know, that are going to get some major surprises in this one today, though. Every week the audience grows, and that's great. And I never thought I'd be saying this in 2023, but 44 years earlier, in August of 1979, my life was pretty much awful. But today, looking back, I'm kind of thankful for it because it gives me such a great story to tell. You know, that's awesome. We're all looking forward to this one, especially. You had another great stud cast last week and was finally able to end one with a tremendous learning tree question 
from a gentleman who I think was from San Francisco about who influenced you more. Was it your father or your grandfather? I really loved your answer. And my question now is, how do you get started on this one? Where do we ride first? Well, something happens in this one that many fans are probably not even aware ever happened, actually, uh, simply because, uh, you know, it was never expected to happen, basically. After this wrestler had built a reputation as uh, probably being the most feared and hated top southeastern heel uh, after a long four-year run, man. Uh, so this one is, uh, I think, so a lot of fans are going to be extremely surprised about this. The really sad part was it ended much too soon. After uh, after the turn came, uh, it didn't last very long because of one of the most difficult decisions I ever had to make in my life. Uh, we'll kind of get to some of that today. Uh, this turn is going to happen on the Knoxville cart uh, that we'll be talking about today. Uh, we'll discuss the TV show for this big cart, the results of the matches. We'll talk about the attendance for that night like we normally do. And then we're going to ride south into the Gulf Coast Territory. That was beginning, man, basically a dive. You know, it wasn't dropping off. It was diving into disaster. And we'll talk about what the plans we're going to be looking at uh, to save that territory down there. Mm -hmm. We'll also discuss a mobile cart that very clearly points to the problems there. Uh, We'll hear about the TV show to promote that cart, results of the cart, and the attendances for all three of those major cities in that territory. And hopefully we'll have enough time for another learning tree question as well, man. All right. This one definitely sounds like it's full of intrigue, Stud. I assume we're going to start in Tennessee, especially especially after you telling us something never expected was going to happen on the card for Friday night, August 24th, 1979. I think I got that right. In the Knoxville Coliseum. So who was on that card? Set that up for us. Well, man, it opened up with the turn match from the week before, where Dean Ho and Eddie Mansfield, they had wrestled to a 20-minute time limit draw. And uh, and then they both uh, didn't want to leave the ring. In fact, they refused to leave the ring. And and uh, they wanted to make sure that they had the chance to wrestle each other again the next week, but uh, with a no time limit. And uh, so actually, uh, they asked, uh, they found Les Thatcher. They made him uh, have Les Thatcher come down to ringside. And, uh, and he said, okay, guys, uh, I'll make sure that you have a no-time-limit match and you can wrestle each other again next week. So that was the opening match. Crusher Blackwell was returning to Knoxville for the first time in more than a month. Hmm. Uh, he'd been uh, down south uh, and uh, steadily uh, having matches with guys like Ox Baker. Uh, he's going to be here for w- one week on this trip. And uh, it was like a much-needed change of pace for him, man. Because uh, it's pretty hard to wrestle Oxbaker every night. <laughs> so it was a little tough. <laughs> so he was facing Alexis Smirnoff. And uh, and uh, Smirnoff was about to become an integral part, man, of, of something special that uh, is going to take place. Tony Charles was wrestling Norvell Austin in a non-title match. Tor Tanaka and the new mass man, the Korean assassin, uh, managed by Gorgeous George Jr. They were taking on Paul Orndorff and myself. So uh, I had a chance to wrestle partners with Paul, which I really was looking forward to. Uh, Paul was really getting over, man. Wow. He, well, he was a great star all his life, really. And then, uh, and then we had a Southeastern Championship match. The champion, Mongolian Stomper, 
was uh, in a return championship match for the title against the former champion, Dick Slater. Stomper had a special manager for this one, and uh, a guy with a really distinct dislike for Slater, uh, that was the Korean assassin, who most people knew was Kevin Sullivan instantly, no matter whether he's wearing a mask or not, because Kevin had a pretty unique body. Right. So the main event was the hair versus loser leaves match that was agreed upon basically at the end of the main event from the week before. That was Robert. Uh, uh, he was going to be shaving his head if he lost. And Jimmy Golden was going to be leaving Southeastern if he lost. All right. So that's really a great six-card match. I, I got to ask you, though, before we move forward about Paul, Paul Orndorff. This was in 1979. How did he look back then? How did he stack up compared to what we remember? Of course, we just lost him not long ago. But, of course, a lot of folks remember him in the 80s and into the 90s in, in WWE in, in rare form. Oh, man. He always had that great body. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that, actually, later in the program. Man, wow. About, uh, about uh, Paul and, uh, and how good he was and, uh, and some of the things that uh, fans might not know about Paul. Wow. But you're right. He had a great body. Yeah. He always had a great body. Uh, he'd, uh, and he got that from playing football. Oh, yeah. So, cool. Uh, no, so... Uh, yeah, we'll be talking about uh, dealing with uh, Paul a great deal. And uh, so this kind of show kind of opened up uh, with a bandage up Rob, who was uh, sitting with Les. Uh, and they watched the end of that six-man elimination tag match, mm-hmm. uh, which was the night before. Uh, we had just finished the, the, uh, the, all the matches the night before. We're on TV the next day. Uh, Rob's, uh, Rob had gotten himself busted open, and we'll talk about how that happened. But uh, – it was in a match where Dad and Rob and I had wrestled against Jimmy Golden, Norvell Austin, and Tor Tanaka. And the video started when Norvell lost. Uh, uh, Tanaka had already lost. Uh, Norvell was the second guy on that team to lose. And, uh, and uh, both of the guys had gone to the dressing room, Tanaka and them both, Tanaka and Norvell. And then it was all three of us against Jimmy Golden by himself. So... So Jimmy got out of the ring and uh, and he got the microphone. And he made a challenge to us, and he what he said is you know if if Ron if you and and uh, Buddy will go back to the dressing room right now, he said uh, I want to I want Rob by himself because you know of what happened to me with my hair you know <laughs> and he's out there with his shower cap on with a little <laughs> strap underneath his chin and uh, so he says. I want Rob, you know, uh, and then he said, and then he said, I'll tell you what, though, he goes, he goes, I, I'm not finished. Then he says, when I beat Rob, he says, then you guys, one of you can come back at a time and then, and I'll beat all three of you, basically. <laughs> so he was, he was talking a little trash, no doubt about that. So, so, so dad and I, you know, uh, we didn't much want to do it, but Rob, you know, because <laughs> The challenge was so personally to him, and because the crowd seemed to like the response, you know, when Jimmy said, I just want Rob by myself, so uh, Rob said, you know, go ahead, man, uh, you guys go, well, you know, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll do this, I don't mind this a bit, you know. So we left the ring, went back to the dressing room. Well, by the time we got in the dressing room, closed the door, uh, Austin and Tanaka came racing back to the ring, and all three of them jumped Rob. And uh, before we knew what was going on, they already had him bloodied up. And when we got back to the ring, they ran back to the dressing room, all three of them. 
And uh, then Golden refused to come back to the ring. So basically, uh, what's the referee going to do? He counted him out, man, and he raised our hands. But that wasn't the end of it. So Rob wanted Les to, you know, uh, he's watching this video with Les, and he says, you know, Les, we've watched this part of it. He goes, I want to show what happened now, you know. Uh, and uh, But then Les told Rob, you know, he said, uh, Rob, he goes, uh, uh, I, this is pretty pretty odd, but, you know, he said, Jimmy Golden and Norvell Austin uh, have gotten in touch with Don Curtis, and, and they have demanded that 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 uh, we let them show that particular piece of video from that match. <laughs> so then and he said they also demanded that uh, no one announce the main event for this card, this upcoming card, until Golden and Austin – show what happened next, you know, and, the, and they wanted to do that, and they're going to do it. He said they also asked that they could be in the personality profile today. So he said, then he goes, and they made another, you know, demand, basically. He said Jimmy Golden wanted to have Norvell Austin in his corner for this match, Rob, with you, you know, uh, for the hair against uh, him that's losing, losing uh, leaving town. Mm-hmm. And he said, but – uh. You know, and he wants to be, uh, he wants to have uh, Norvell in his corner, but he doesn't want you to have anybody in your corner. Nobody at all. <laughs> okay, so that's a lot of demands that are being laid out there, Ron. So Robert was totally backed into a corner, I guess you could say. He must have wanted Golden gone very badly. That match, if it happened, was really going to kind of change everything, right? Oh, yeah. Well, you're, you're certainly right about that. It certainly was, man. Uh, a lot of demands, too, had been made there, but that match was so important to the both of them at this point. Jimmy losing his hair really got him, man. I mean, it, it drove him nuts. So uh, so Les had the complete contract there. And it had already been drawn up. He had it with him at the set for Rob to sign. And, you know, Rob, Rob knew the deal that he was going to have to go to the ring by himself and uh, Norval Austin going to be standing in Jimmy Golden's corner, you know, but uh, he didn't hesitate, you know. And then when he finished uh, signing, he told Les, you know, he said, uh, you know, the talking and the demands are all done now, man. And he goes, <clears throat> all that matters now, man, is who's going to win, right? Yep. So the studio popped and uh, – Rob got up. He was dressed to wrestle. He was in the first match, and he went to the ring. Boy, and he got a big pop. Fans were really into it. All right, so it sounds like the TV was off to a great start. And I'll bet no one was leaving their TV sets until that personality profile was over. Well, man, you know, on all Knoxville TV shows, when you're consistently getting an 80% share of the entire audience <laughs> watching TV, during the during the hour that Southeastern was on, pretty it was pretty much assured no one turned off their wrestling until the show was over, basically. <laughs> and, and if they did on this TV, they missed the next tremendous tag match that came on right after this match with Rob, because uh, Paul Orndorff jumped me, joined me, and uh, and uh, we uh, we wrestled uh, right there on television in the very next match, Tanaka and the Korean Assassin. And his manager, Gorgeous George Jr., they all went to, with Les to the set, and uh, and they made some comments while we wrestled. Uh, then it was time for the special personality profile. Jimmy Golden with his bathing suit cap on, uh, on his bald head, and uh, Norvell Austin, they joined Les at the profile set. And then when fans saw the two of them there, basically they exploded. They, 
They Jimmy had Jimmy had a lot of heat, man. It was ridiculous. So uh, you know, Golden got it right, saying that he was glad that everyone had done exactly what he wanted to this point, and if everything went as he and Norvell wanted, fans, uh, you know, were going to uh, everything went like they wanted to him and Norvell, that uh, all these fans were going to get a real treat. They're going to see Robert Fuller with a bald head real soon. <laughs> so then Les asked the director to roll that final piece of video that Rob couldn't watch with him because these guys had, uh, had made uh, you know, Don Curtis commit to letting them run it. And it was from the six-man tag match from the night before, and it opened with Robert. He was dragging Golden in, into the ring uh, for their one-on-one -on -one encounter. But uh, that didn't last too long because obviously, like I said, Norvell and Tanaka, they came sprinting down the ring, and all three of them, Quickly, man, they, they they busted him up uh, and had him bleeding pretty bad, laying on the mat. And uh, when Dad and I got back in the ring, uh, all three of them disappeared, obviously into the dressing room, returned to the ring, uh, and refused to come back. Uh, Golden was counted out. They raised our hand. Uh, it seemed like the night was over, but Rob was mad. He was upset, especially at Golden now, because Golden said, you know, basically you send, my, send your dad and Ron back to the dressing room. And I'll take you on by myself, and then they end up uh, jumping. So, uh, you know, uh, so Golden came, uh, you know, Rob, Rob got on the microphone, you know, and, uh, and he said, you know, I got a challenge for you, Golden. Come outside. He said, you don't got the guts to come to the ring, but come out here so I can see your face. So Golden came about halfway down to the ring, and he stopped. And Rob said, you know, he wanted to end this for good between me and you, man. And he goes, I want to. I want to have a loser leave southeastern match next week with you, Jimmy Golden. Wow! And the crowd exploded. Wow! Right? Hey, they were all into that man. They didn't get to see what they thought they were going to get to see, and then so Jimmy, uh, still back by his dressing room, he made Phil Rainey, who was our, you know, he was a commentator with Les on the TV, but he also announced uh, the matches every week. So he made Phil Rainey bring the microphone back to where he could say something. And he said he was willing to do the loser leave southeastern. He said, "I'll do the loser leave southeastern, Robert, if if I lose." But he goes, "If you lose, though, I don't want you to leave southeastern." He said, "I want you to shave your head just like I did." <laughs> so so Rainey brought the microphone back to Rob, and uh, Rob said, uh, "You know what, Jimmy Golden, you got a deal." <laughs> so, so that was a very historic match, man. You'd ne I'd never seen one of those mm. where one guy's hair's up and the other mm -hmm. guy's got to leave the territory if he loses. <laughs> so the video was over at that point, you know, and Golden reminded Les that Norvell was allowed to be his manager and in his corner with nobody there in Rob's corner. And uh, then uh, and Les said, that's correct. And he passed him the same contract that Rob had signed just uh, early, early part of the program for Jimmy's signature, hmm. and bang, Jimmy signed her right away, and one of the most important matches in Southeastern wrestling history was going to take place six days later. Wow. Okay, so another tremendous personality profile. That's how you do it right there. A historic match between two cousins, no less, was going to affect the future of Southeastern Knoxville. So who did you put in the ring? Who was in the ring next? Well, Jimmy Golden went to the ring with Norvell Austin, uh, standing in his corner for his TV match. 
he liked to have, it looked like he had to have Norvell with him wherever he went at that point, I guess. In the last match of the TV, uh, Jimmy obviously got himself a big win, uh, you know, and uh, the fans got, <laughs> they roared uh, because he just he kept having to adjust his bathing suit at his cap. They all got on him big time. So the last match of the TV was based upon this running battle between the new Southeastern champion, Mongolian Stomper, and the former champion, Dick Slater. They had faced each other, and I get to looking back in five out of the last eight weeks before this this night uh, that was coming up. So they had had each other, a lot of each other. They'd seen a bunch of each other. Dick Slater got a great welcome in the last match of the show, and he wrestled against Eddie Mansfield, a pretty good opponent. Uh, Gigi and the Korean assassin, they joined Les at the set, so Gigi could kind of explain why he was going to allow the Korean assassin to replace him the following Friday night, and he was going to let the assassin go to the ring and manage the stomper, uh, which uh, he had never done before with anybody. Mm. And... uh, and he, you know, he explained kind of the reason for it. Uh, you know, uh, the assassin here, he really just doesn't like uh, Dick Slater. Well, obviously he didn't because he had lost the loser to leave. He shouldn't even have been there. So they weren't, you know, they weren't there very long before Dick Slater hit Mansfield, man. Well, one of those famous right hands that, that Slater was famous for. Uh, he knocked Eddie Mansfield into next week, man. I mean, wow, I was, I was like, God, he ain't getting up. <laughs> and, he sure wasn't. and then when Slater covered him for the win, the Korean assassin, that was, that was a, that was a Sullivan uh, sitting there at the set with, with, uh, with Les and uh, Gigi. But here he came running, man. He jumped up on the apron. He was going to come in and stop, uh, stop uh, Slater from getting the three count. And as soon as he jumped on the apron, <laughs> Slater got up and he hit him with one of those right hands. And uh, when he did, it knocked him backwards off the off this apron of the ring, and he slid halfway across the studio, almost up to the set where Les and Gigi on his back. <laughs> and he was laying there too. Now, so there were a couple guys laying on, uh, laying around when the uh, so basically the TV show ended up with two big right hands. Right. <laughs> okay. That's a pretty good TV show, it sounds like to me. So I can't wait to hear what happened in a lot of those upcoming matches. And I'm really curious about the shocking heel turn that you mentioned in the title of this episode. I'm assuming that's going to be happening. So l- let's talk about Friday night, August 24th, 1979, in the famous Knoxville Coliseum. Well, it was no, you know, as we talked about, uh, Dean Ho and Eddie Mansfield, they had got this agreement from the week before that they were going to have a no time limit match. And uh, so that's exactly what happened. And uh, this one was won by Dean Ho uh, at just about the 30 minute mark, 30 minute mark, you know, uh, but they went past the 20 minute mark and, uh, and uh, Ho got the victory. Uh, Crusher Blackwell lost his match against Alexis Smirnoff. Tony Charles had regained his United States junior belt from Norvell Austin on August the 10th, 1979. Uh, Norvell wanted a shot at it again, obviously, but Charles said that in order to get another shot with me, you're going to have to beat me in a non-title match. So Norvell just that, did just that on that night. Uh, he, he, he won his match over Tony Charles 
and he was uh, going to be able to wrestle him now again for a chance to win the U.S. belt from him again. Paul Orndorff and I won our tag match over Tanaka and the Korean Assassin, uh, managed by Gorgeous George Jr., obviously. Orndorff stole the show, man, uh, with a move at the end of it that he had never done. I'd never seen him do uh, since he'd been in Tennessee. And uh, Paul, Paul, uh, you know, Paul, mm. and he mentioned Paul and what he looked like and all that. Paul, Paul Orndorff had been recruited by Eddie Graham in, in the Florida Territory, and Eddie had, was recruiting these wrestlers, these amateur uh, athletes that were great stars. He had brought in Bob Roop uh, because he was uh, an Olympic wrestler. Uh, and uh, uh, Paul Orndorff was a star football player for the University of Tampa, mm-hmm. big time. Man. Mm-hmm. So on this night, in the end of this match, Paul Orndorff hit the Korean assassin with a football tackle that that he and he basically hit him right in the waist. The bent over, got grabbed him up and jerked him up in the air, ran him across the ring and drove him into the ring corner so hard that the entire ring moved at least a foot. Oh, wow. Yes. Wow. I've never seen that happen, right? And the Korean man, he wasn't just beaten, he was almost assassinated. Wow. <laughs> Wow. His name was the assassin, Korean assassin, and he almost got assassinated. So, uh, Wow. Listen, a lot of us have heard about Paul Orndorff, especially when he was still in college. The first time I saw him wrestle on TV in Alabama, he hit his opponent with one of those tackles that I can only imagine how bad that would have hurt. So when is, the, when is this heel turn going to happen, Stud? Well, the next match on the card was the Southeastern champion, Mongolian Stomper, defending against the former champion, Dick Slater. And, and for the first time ever, the Stomper was not going to be managed by Gorgeous George Jr., but by the Korean assassin. And uh, so that, that, a lot of that had to do with the problem that, uh, the, between the Korean assassin and with Slater. All right, so why would Gorgeous George Jr. want to let the Korean assassin manage his southeastern champion the mongolian stumper in such an important i mean a big time match well remember dave two weeks earlier dick slater beat kevin sullivan and the loser leaves southeastern match then the next day on tv gorgeous george jr introduced this new oriental mass wrestler named the korean assassin who almost everybody knew instantly was kevin sullivan like i said man kevin had a very unique body he could wear any. He could wear any kind of mask he wanted, but he, nobody's going to hide who he is. So the Korean assassin had the best reason ever to get even with Slater, and uh, now a huge mistake was made by Gorgeous George Jr. to really a huge mistake to allow his champion to be managed by basically a stranger. Kevin didn't know nothing about managing the match, uh, you know. So so it was going to come back to haunt Gigi and and forever. So toward the end of that match, the referee got knocked down accidentally. And then Stomper got a full Nelson on Slater. And he took him over to where the Korean assassin was. And the Korean assassin uh, jumped up on the apron to, to hit Slater. And, uh, and uh, then, uh, you know, rather than hit him, he threw a chop. And, I, you know, I don't know where Kevin got the idea of a judo chop. But uh, whatever for whatever reason... Uh, Slater ducked, and when he did, uh, uh, 
that Kevin cracked the stomper man with the judo chop in the throat. Then uh, Slater went down on top of him uh, right there. But the referee was, he was at his back turn. He was actually still on his stomach. So the assassin there, uh, Kevin, quickly climbed up on the top rope and he jumped off in Slater's back, supposedly. But Slater saw him coming and he moved. So now Sullivan knee dropped Stomper in the throat. He chopped him and now he knee dropped him in the throat. So uh, Slater drop kicked the assassin uh, (laughs) off from the ring. And uh, then he covered the Stomper for the win, right? So Slater's hand got raised, man, to the delight of the fans, and Dick quickly grabbed the belt, and he left the ring. Well, <laughs> the Stomper, he, he was pretty upset, right? I mean, you know, Gigi had never jumped off in his throat and done anything like that to him. So, uh, so the Stomper was more angry than I'd ever seen him. He just, and he started into the Korean assassin's rear end, man, and I'm telling you, Wow, it was unbelievable. He was just, he, he was destroying him. The crowd loved it, right? <laughs> There's two mm-hmm. heels fighting each mm-hmm. other, right? Mm-hmm. So then the referee tried to stop him, but uh, Stomper grabbed the ref, they threw him over the top rope and out on the concrete. And he went back to kicking uh, Kevin's butt, right? <laughs> and uh, So then Tor Tanaka came to the ring, right? And, uh, and the Stomper didn't see him coming, and the Tanaka attacked Stomper from behind, and gosh, the Stomper was just out of control, man. He turned, and he went into Tanaka, man. The crowd got even louder. They were like, geez. Then Alexis Smirnoff comes down to the ring, and he took his shot at trying to get control of the Stomper. But the Mongol was on a roll, man, at that point, and there was no stopping him. Then another referee came to the ring and uh, exited the same way as the first one. Stomper grabbed him and threw him over the top rope and out of the ring. So, uh, you know, body, the, you know, at this point, uh, Gorgeous George Jr.'s men are just spread laying all over the ring and Stomper's just running the ropes and stomping them. And uh, so Gigi finally arrived at the ring, you know, and, and I don't think Gigi realized how angry. His big paycheck was. <laughs> That's what I want to call Stomper. He was his paycheck, right? Yeah, right. You know, and he 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 figured, you know, I'm I'm gonna straighten this out, and he just walked straight up to Stomper, thinking that he was he was gonna stop, and uh, oh, he found out he was dead wrong. Uh, the Stomper had saved his best for last. Man, he went wild on Gigi, man, wow. more than any of them. Wow. And the building exploded at that point. I mean, he's he's got a ring full of heels, and he's just killing them all. <laughs> and uh, he fired Gigi into the ropes. He kicked him in the stomach. Uh, then he started running to the ropes and coming back and stomping him in the head and the face. And uh, so finally, Gigi, uh, now everybody in the Coliseum at that point was on their feet. They were going nuts because the stomper was going nuts. And the stomper dropped down on top of uh, Gigi, who was bleeding at that point, and he started just choking him. So I obviously gave him the, these three heels that were in there with him the opportunity to get him stopped. And they, they got him on top, and they finally got him stopped. And when they got him stopped, boy, they all went to work on the stomper at that point. Uh, soon stomper, man, he was a bloody mess like Gigi was. And the, and the fans had gone from roaring to silence, you know. They, and then they started looking at the back of the Coliseum to see, you know, 
who's going to come and stop this, right? You know, so <laughs> so Dick Slater had stopped uh, just inside the big black curtain that he went through when he had won the belt. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess he heard this stuff started, and then he stopped, and he kind of watched. And uh, so he started back to the ring. Uh, and he was the only guy to come down. Uh, Gigi's men, baby, they they basically finished with the Stomper. I mean, Stomper was laying there, and they, they had really done a job on him. And uh, they were trying to get the bloody Gigi out of the ring, and they carried him on their shoulders back to the dressing room. Uh, the Stomper was out. He was unconscious. Wow. He had to be stretchered out of the ring. And uh, when they put him on the stretcher and they started the stretching him out of the ring and, uh, uh, you know, Slater's kind of walking beside the stretcher, mm-hmm. he got a standing ovation from the fans. And, uh, I mean, <laughs> I hadn't heard an ovation like that in a really long time in Knoxville. Wow. You know? And uh, then he was later, he, he was put in an ambulance and they, they sent him to the hospital, man. One of those hospitals that I visited myself quite a bit. You're close to the Coliseum. So I kind of knew what that ride was about. That is a wild ending and probably a wild ride for the Stomper and shocking finish to a match. I certainly didn't expect the Mongolian Stomper to be the crowd's hero before the night was over. So what happened in the hair versus loser leaves match in the main event? And I can't believe you would have a bigger match than what you just talked about. Yeah, I mean, how do you follow that? But they right. did. I mean, right. Rob and Jimmy went out there, and gee, my knee was unbelievable. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Norvell ended up uh, getting involved in the match, like uh, pretty <laughs> much everybody would have suspected. But, uh, you know, Rob lost. And they gave uh, Jimmy Golden and uh, Norvell Austin, uh, uh, they were right there to, to hold him down. And, uh, <laughs> and they shaved Rob's head <laughs> just like Jimmy's. Wow. Okay. So everybody got the bang for their buck. That's an absolutely fantastic night of surprises, almost from beginning to end. So what about attendance? How'd you guys do on that? Well, a card like this one, man, before the war started, uh, and being the, this was the last week in the summer, which was the, the, it was the end of the best period of time in the year for wrestling. Uh, that crowd would have been well over 5,000. Maybe a total sellout, man. What a card it was. And then, but instead, uh, we, it barely broke 4,000, man. And even at that low level, it was the best crowd of the summer. Uh, but for me, gosh, I got to say, Dave, it, it was a huge disappointment, man. I was really thinking something. I don't care if we're having a war or not. Somewhere, some night, something is going to happen that we're going to get back to those big 5,000-plus crowds. Wow, okay. All right, Ron, a great first part on this one. So when we come back, it may be to an even bigger disappointment down south when this stud cast continues. Okay, and stud, on the break, you mentioned earlier you had something to say specifically on the break about one of, a new Ask the Stud that's debuting on YouTube. Tell us what's happening. Yeah, and you know, uh, I really love these shows, Dave, and, uh, and I kind of, I kind of wanted to say something myself personally about this one. This is going to be the eighth one of these. Uh, wow, they're just, uh, they're just a, a, a tremendous number of fans, just crazy about them. And uh, this one, I got to be honest, each one of them always freaks me out about how good the questions are. But this may be the best one so far. Uh, it's going to be the eighth one, Ask the Stud. Uh, it's an exclusive thing that you can only see on YouTube. 
Uh, it will be happening on this coming Saturday night, which is going to be August the 19th. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, geez, I haven't recorded it yet, but I have, I have, uh, I have the idea from just, uh, just speaking to the guy that handles the recordings for me. He says these questions are tremendous, Ron. You're going to love this one. So, uh, you know, I really enjoy doing these things. I just want to make fans aware that this is going to be the eighth Ask the Stud. You can go to YouTube, Southeastern Rewind, uh, subscribe if you're not already subscribed there, and uh, you'll be able to hear this for free. Usually these things run at least an hour, sometimes as much as like an hour, 10 possibly. So, uh, you know, it's a, uh, but, uh, hey, wow, I really, really enjoy doing them. Uh, fans are really, really complimentary after they're listening to them. Uh, this one's got some of the greatest questions. But I just want to make everybody aware, this Saturday, August the 19th, you can go to Southeastern Rewind on YouTube, and uh, you can hear this eighth one of these assistants. All right, welcome back on the Studcast. And listen, I would, I would have loved to see that Mongolian stomper match. It was something like I probably have never seen before. I've seen a lot of wrestling matches. I can't wait to hear next week how that entire thing goes from here. All right, speaking of hearing how things go, we're now in southeastern Gulf Coast, Ron, and things, according to the title of this episode, are about to take a disastrous dive in attendance. And, and I'm talking literally only weeks after it was like everything was golden. So not Jimmy Golden, but but going really well. All right, so we're going back to Pensacola, where we were last week. Andre the Giant faced the dangerous Ox Baker in front of a rare, at this point, sold-out Gulf Coast, Gulf Coast building. Yeah, so, you know, uh, what was on the uh, card uh, for, the, for Tuesday, the 21st of 1979, was... Uh, just three days before the Knoxville card that we already talked about in the first part of this podcast. Yeah. So we're back in Pensacola, like you have said. Uh, there's a different card here this time, uh, obviously, than uh, Andre. Andre's a pretty special thing. So this card on the on the, the Tuesday night, August the 21st, 79, opened up with Roy Lee Welch taking on Ted Oates, who was a— Young wrestler, I had a brother that was a great wrestler, too. Both of them out of Columbus, Georgia. Uh, Ron Slinker was facing the Inferno. Herb Calvert was taking on Crusher Blackwell. The day before, Blackwell was going to leave to go to Tennessee for a week's vacation. So, uh, you know, the wrestling pro, and he needed that vacation. The wrestling pro, Tarzan Baxter, wrestled against Ox Baker. And the Samoans were getting another chance at the southeastern tag belts of the champion assassins. This time, that match was going to be a no-disqualification match. The main event was a special challenge handicap match. The Southeastern champion, Austin Idol, agreed to defend his belt. This is pretty odd. And he was going to wrestle both gladiators if they tagged in and out as a team. And uh, Idol only did it because he said if he won the match, then he would never have to defend against either of those guys again. (laughs) And if he lost the match, that the gladiator uh, that, that secured the win over him was going to get a championship match the following week. All right, so uh, really not a bad card at all, Ron. I've never heard of that kind of a handicap match, though, with those kind of stipulations, but it would be interesting. So my question, 
I know the original gladiator was Dick Steinborn. So who was the other gladiator? Well, he was none other than Louis Tillet. <laughs> All right, wait. You mean Louis Tillet, the booker. So he was a former wrestler, I'm assuming, obviously. And why would a booker put himself in the ring unless it was an absolute necessity? Well, that's a good question, Dave. Uh, Louis was a good worker, uh, but now he'd become a desperate booker. <laughs> All right, good answer, stud. All right, I get it. So what about the TV to promote this car? Set that up for us. Well, one of the gladiators, Dick Steinborn, joined Charlie Platt to set while his partner, Louis Tillette, took on an opponent in the ring in the opening match. Steinborn covered all the possibilities in this upcoming handicap match. Uh, against uh, the hot heel, the hot heel in that territory down there, Austin Idol, who was the current Southeastern champion. The second gladiator, Tillett, won with the same hold that his partner used regularly uh, with a sleeper hold. So the Samoans made it made a now, at this point, a rare TV appearance in preparation for their upcoming Southeastern Tag Championship match with the champion assassin. Uh, Charlie said they were men as impressive as they always were. And uh, these guys were really, really good. And uh, he said, uh, after just like the, and all the other times that they'd wrestle on TV, they were extra stiff on television. And uh, both of the guys they wrestled had to be helped out of the ring when it was over. Wasn't uncommon for those boys to, to put a little pain on people. They couldn't help it. Wow. All right, so how about the personality profile? Who was on that? Well, man, this was going to be the best segment of this show because uh, 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 after talking to Charlie and I listened to what happened down there, you know, I, I thought, wow, that had to be one of tremendous profile. So we had our Oxbaker and the Southeastern Tag Champion Assassins on with Charlie. And, uh, and it also had a video of that recent match with Andre against Ox the Baker against Ox Baker from Pensacola, Florida, the week before this card that we just talked about. Uh, and in that match, the assassins came to the ring to help their friend Ox Baker. And, uh, you know, if you were wrestling Andre, you needed help, <laughs> especially if you were by yourself. So, uh, you know, here they came down uh, to get involved in Ox Baker and Andre's match. And then the, the most dangerous moments of that entire match happened at this point because the assassins and, and the ox kind of got Andre down and the assassins uh, got Andre's arms behind his back and ox baker man had that tape fist and boy, he loaded up that fist and he got a clean shot at Andre's heart and with that heart punch. Uh, and uh, it was so scary that the, Charlie said the fans in the studio bleachers when they watched this video and they saw him hit him with that heart punch, mm -hmm. that the fans in the bleachers who were sitting right next to the profile area where they were doing this, mm -hmm. he said they all started this. They were just screaming, man. They were like, wow. They all screamed out loud. Uh, Andre dropped face first on the mat as soon as he was hit. Wow. Uh, they were still buzzing uh, about what was going on as the video showed the giant being held back to the dressing room by the big Samoans. Wow. Wow. So the three of them then took the end of the profile uh, to tear into their opponents. And, you know, they had already seen this, uh, you know, what they had done to Andre. And so they, so the assassins started out and they laughed about the, about the sad Samoans, they call them. 
that they had just wrestled in the TV match earlier in the, in the day and, the, you know, that they beat somebody that did know how to wrestle and it wasn't going to happen with them that the Samoans had no chance of beating them and that the Samoans had lost so many times to them already that every time they wrestled them now, they said the Samoans would be crying coming to the ring. <laughs> <laughs> so Ox he just roared with laughter at that one, man, you know, and, and then he, and then the assassins just to make more fun of the Samoans, they, he, they started wiping these fake tears from their eyes like this. Ox, <laughs> they were crying like this, right? So, you know, and Charlie's telling me about it. And I was like, I could picture it. I was going, wow, this is pretty good. So, uh, Ox then finished the profile and uh, and he asked Charlie, he said, uh, you know, he says, is it true that uh, this so-called famous wrestling pro, that's who he's going to be wrestling in, in Pensacola. He says, is it true that this famous wrestling pro uh, who's going to be wrestling out here in the next TV match, by the way, he knew it. Uh, you know, he says that he's from this part of the country. And Charlie mm -hmm. answered, you know, very proudly. He goes, hey, it's a, absolutely, you know, the pros uh, certainly is. He, he's a product of the wiregrass, man, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, so uh, and, uh, Charlie, Charlie said, uh, Ox then, he said, he asked me another question. He goes, uh, he says, uh, Charlie, he goes, how good are the heart doctors here? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I didn't know where he was going with this. He goes, uh, he said, you know, he said, but I, but he said, I had to go along. So he said, he said, yeah, he said, I told him, he said, uh, yeah, I think they're some of the best. You know, why? You know, we asked Ox why. Ox says, you know, he says, he goes, because, you know, Charlie says, I'm going to go back to the dressing room and I'm going to tape my fist and I'm going to give the old pro in that next match a little <laughs> taste. Of what's coming this week in these matches, all of them against me. Wow. <laughs> and, he said, and then he said, I'm talking about him taking a little ride today to the nearest wire grass with a fire ass to the <laughs> hospital. Wow. Oh, he said, I don't know what to do, Ronnie. <laughs> like, wow. Of course. What in this? <laughs> That things are things are going pretty pretty, pretty <laughs> far out, man. In this profile. All right, so Ox Baker actually got away with saying that on TV. Did, sorry, did he? Did, <laughs> they did don't he... believe it, you know. They they're not prepared for that, right? You know, in the live show, the live broadcast. So you know they don't bleep out that one word. So yeah. You know, uh, Ox had himself fun, right? Wow, for real. All right, so did he? Did he do anything? During that next match with uh, used to be my hero, I, it still is the late wrestling now late wrestling pro. Well, I asked Charlie that same question, you know, about well, what did he do, Charlie? Did he go to the dressing room? Did he tape his fist up mm -hmm. and the whole deal? And he says, uh, he said, well, Ronnie, because he said first of all, he said uh, pro heard that, and you know, he <laughs> said he's sitting back there in his dressing room, they got a monitor, you know, and he said. He couldn't hardly wrestle for looking at the dressing room door where Ox was in the dressing room, right? So Charlie said that uh, Ox came out toward the end of the match. He had taped his fist, and he said he stood right there beside the ring, man, and he pounded his fist, he said, into his hand. 
And he had that nasty look on his face, man, the look he was famous for. So Charlie said the, the pro put his opponent to sleep, you know, uh, <laughs> and you're going to love this part of it. You know, the, Charlie said the pro put his opponent to sleep. And then he said he walked over to the ropes where Ox had been, was standing still there, pounding mm-hmm. his fist. Mm-hmm. And he said he put a foot on the bottom one and he put a hand on the second rope and he lifted them apart, spread them wide. And he said, come on in, Ox. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, some, that's some pretty good guts right there when you're talking to, uh, to a man that's that big. I always admired Leon Baxter. Always thought he was so cool. But that story makes my day stud. So I don't know how Ox Baker could get away with getting any more heat, how that would be possible than what he's doing right now without laying his hands on somebody. That's amazing. So how did the TV show end? Well, it ended up with Austin Idol, man, in a very unusual handicap match on TV. Uh, You know, a handicap match was usual enough, but you certainly never had one normally on TV. And he had two opponents in the handicap match, and they tagged in and out. Uh, but, uh, but Charlie said it didn't last long, man, <laughs> the match. You know, he said uh, uh, it didn't take long to, uh, he said, Idol got the figure four on the first one of those two guys. And uh, obviously, the guy gave up. So basically, he said the match was officially over, and Idol got his hand raised. Mm-hmm. But uh, then he said the second guy in there that hadn't that hadn't gotten been in the hole mm-hmm. he said he was trying to help the, the guy out of the ring because the guy couldn't walk he couldn't you know that figure four is a great hole yeah and he said idol sneaked up behind him and pulled him into the ring and put the figure four on him and wouldn't let it go <laughs> he said both the gladiators finally had to come running into the ring and i'd let him go and he left at that point but uh uh, I don't, I don't, uh, was getting some heat too at that time. Oh, no doubt. All right. A really good TV show. It sounds like, so considering the Pensacola card only had five matches. So how about three days later, August 21st, 1979. Well, Roy Lee Welch beat Ted Oates, uh, Ron Slinker won over the Inferno, uh, Crusher Blackwell got a win over Herb Calvert. He left the next day, uh, went down there, and that's where he's going to end up wrestling in Knoxville on a card we just talked about. The Southeastern Tag Championship match ended up a no contest. The Samoans were just about to beat the Assassins. And this time, instead of the Assassins coming down to help Ox, Ox ends up going and getting involved in their match. And that led to Crusher Blackwell uh, joining the fight. And uh, that match was declared a no contest, ended up a big brawl, and uh, it was going to be coming back the next week as a six-man elimination tag. Austin Idol uh, couldn't beat both the Gladiators, and so he actually got himself disqualified because it appeared that they were going to get a pinfall on him, and he didn't want to lose that way. So the Gladiators got their hands raised, and that was enough for Idol to, to have to defend his southeastern belt the next week against one of the two gladiators. And I'm, I'm sure, uh, you know, that that was going to be uh, probably uh, Dick Steinborn that was going to take that match. Wow. Okay. So what about attendance? All three major cities that week. How'd you guys do? Well, man, this is, this is this, uh, the title of this uh, episode comes from these, these figures right here. I mean, Montgomery dropped from 20, 2300 down to 1900. 
It was the first time Montgomery had been below 2,000 fans since May of 1979. Mobile fell from 2,900 to 2,500. Dothan followed suit. It went from 2,500 down to 2,100. And uh, let's add Pensacola to this one. Rather than just the three major cities, uh, uh, let's give the Pensacola total, too. Uh, since it was uh, last week, uh, Pensacola had the biggest crowd in the territory because Andre was on that card. It had 5,100 fans last week, and uh, this week it only had 2,600. Hmm. So, wow. so as a territory, Dave, uh, these four cities dropped from 12,800 fans down to 9,100. That's a loss of 3,700 fans in one week. That's almost 33% loss in revenue in one week. Wow. That's why I called it a disaster. I mean, uh, and worse still, it was almost the last week of summer and the fall. Worst time of the year was the straight ahead for us. Mm. I'll tell you, this stud cast, as usual, has been a real experience, Ron. Your brother now had a bald head, as well as your cousin Jimmy, maybe the last wrestler you would ever think of as a babyface. The Mongolian Stomper had set the Coliseum crowd on fire. Ox Baker was definitely pushing the limits of, shall we say, decency. And the Gulf Coast attendees' numbers were dropping like rain in a hurricane. So I don't know how your 1979 is going to get any worse. But... We got some good news, stud. We're going to have time for another learning tree question. Let's do it. This one comes from Andrew Boykin, Calgary, Alberta, Canada. He says, Andrew says, love your stud cast and your new when wrestling was wrestling post that you do on your social media site. Your last one was a photo and story of you and your brother from 1970. I saw that, by the way, when you both were just starting in the sport. My question is, how did it feel in the ring that night to be doing what your family had done since your grandfather's day in the early 1920s? Wow. What a great question, man. You know, uh, and, and another fan from Canada, Dave, you know, it, it never <laughs> ceases to amaze me, man. We're worldwide, man. It's, it's pretty crazy. Uh, so, uh, Mr. Boykin, I think his name, I think that was his name, last name, Boykin, uh, Mr. Boykin. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Somebody had posted that picture of Rob and I and, uh, I, and I saw it. And it brought back instant memories of that night. And, and now, and here I am now, I get a question about it. So, you know, and, and, and you saw it as well. Uh, you know, it was a great picture. It was me and my brother, uh, why we look like uh, teenagers, you know, like we shouldn't be in the ring. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah. So, you know, and, uh, and I, and I'm very happy to be able to explain, uh, Mr. Boykin, how it had made me feel, you know, it, it was what I had dreamed of all my life. I was, I was basically born to be a wrestler, man. And then it started and that started the uh, day when I was nine days old, uh, my grandmother literally carried me to my first wrestling match with my grandfather wrestling with two of his three brothers that were all wrestlers, Herb and Lester. And, uh, they were in a two out of three fall six man tag match. And, uh, sorry, Mr. Borkin, uh, uh at nine days old, I don't remember any of it. <laughs> Not even who won, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, 
But I was at a wrestling match when I was nine days old. So growing up, wrestling was all I ever knew, man. And then when the entire family got together, which was very seldom, you know, it was like an entire territory full of wrestlers and bookers and referees and promoters and, you know, and the guys at the top were the owners of the business. I mean, no family in history ever had more members involved in the wrestling business. So, you know, uh, and uh, sometimes the the family get-togethers uh, didn't didn't stay real real calm. So you never knew what to expect when they when everybody got together. But that picture of Rob and I, uh, I was 22 years old in that picture. Uh, Rob was 21, and uh, and it was like a tribute to those before us that had that had put on their wool wrestling tights. Back in the day, that's what they wore, were wool wrestling tights, man. 50 years earlier, my granddad and Herb and Lester and Jack and that first generation, all, all they knew what wool wrestling tights were all about. Uh, so, and I'm pretty sure Rob and I were looking across the ring that night at two of the best wrestlers that ever lived, man. The original masked assassins. And uh, that was the they were the Georgia Tag Team Champions, Jody Hamilton and Tom Bernesto. Uh, those two big son of a guns weighed almost 600 pounds. Uh, there I was, me and my brother, man, uh, white meat. I guess it'd be a good way to call it, a good thing to call us. Uh, you know, uh, we were lucky to get to 450 pounds, much less 600. And uh, uh, Mr. Boykin, uh, you asked how I felt that night. Uh, I had goosebumps, man. Uh, standing there in that picture, I remember, and being introduced in front of 8,000 fans in the downtown Atlanta's municipal auditorium. Uh, while that building had seen it all, man, uh, they had events from the World Boxing Championship matches to the debut of the classic Gone with the Wind movie in 1939 wow. in that building. It had seen it all, man. And uh, so my brother and I, uh, we didn't win that night. Uh, and we learned an awful lot about uh, how to lose. We were in a business that was going to require a lot of losses before you could be good enough to become a winner. And uh, we worked our way up just like all the greats before us. Uh, five years after that photo was taken, I owned my first wrestling company. And that same assassin, Jody Hamilton, that had taught my brother and I a whole lot in the summer of 1970, he was now working for me and with me in Southeastern. He was going to work with me uh, for the next 13 years until 1988. That photograph of 1970, uh, Mr. Boykin, it sent chills up and down my spine when I saw it. I hadn't seen it in so long. And it represented in 2023 uh, all that my entire family had given of themselves for the last hundred years in the ring. Wow. That was a pretty sincere answer straight away, Ron, to a great question. So you're always doing something different on your social media sites these days. You're new when wrestling was wrestling post. And I've noticed those really describe memorable moments in your personal wrestling history, this one today that you so eloquently just explained is a perfect example of that. You're becoming a true historian for the sport. So where do we ride next week? 
Well, we're riding into the last days of August 1979 uh, in both territories, actually, with the school starting back and fall of the year on its way, as bad as it had been uh, toward the late part of the summer, uh, especially down south uh, and in the north as well. <laughs> it wasn't doing great in Knoxville either. We still had the war going on. Uh, truly tough times were ahead for both of the territories. Talent was soon going to be swapped from north to south in an attempt, man, to get the momentum again back. Uh, we're going to be moving guys like Blackwell back and forth, Ox Baker. A lot of guys are going to be going back and forth. We're going to take a close look at the Tennessee Territory. Uh, and we're going to do it by comparing it to what happened in the same week a year earlier in 1978. Uh, and we'll do that in the next uh, in the next studcast. We're going to compare the 1978 first end of August card to a 1979 and the and the houses basically the houses more than the cards. We'll discuss the cards for both years. The TV that promotes the 1979 card, the results of that card, and the Knoxville attendance, and then in the Gulf Coast territory. Uh, nothing was dramatically changing on those cards, and the drop in attendance, it wasn't going to change much either. Uh, we're going to return to Mobile uh, instead of Pensacola, where we have been for a couple of weeks. We're going to have our card there, and we'll cover that TV show uh, for the territory and that card, the results of the card and the attendances in all three of the major cities. Wow. Okay, folks, on Facebook, go to Ron Fuller Welch, the Tennessee stud on Facebook. Like and follow him there. Become friends with a living legend on Twitter. Find him on Twitter. Same thing. Ron Fuller Welch. You can follow him there as well. Check out the fantastic website, tnstud.com. tnstud.com for every studcast ever done. 43 super studcast and the stud store. All kinds of souvenirs including Ron's thrilling lion novel called Brutus. Get yours personally autographed. Get it there as well at tnstud.com. Ron's YouTube Southeastern Rewind still red hot. Check it out on YouTube. Put in Southeastern Rewind. It'll lead you there. It'll lead you to 320 videos, the last 89 stud cast, 52 stud stories, and now 61 short rides with the stud. And as we talked about earlier, don't miss the new Ask the Stud number eight question and answer show. It's coming this Saturday, August 19th. The best one yet. Subscribe now at YouTube Southeastern Rewind and you'll see the very best in old school wrestling. All right, Ron, it's all yours. Any last comments? Yeah, man, I would like to thank everybody, obviously, that's been listening and riding with us for years, man. There are a lot of them, Dave. Uh, pretty, It's uh, just amazing what goes on here and uh, just blown away by it. And, uh, and I want to welcome, obviously, all the first-time listeners. We're getting a lot of those still. Uh, please, everybody out there, uh, tell your friends and neighbors about us. Take care of yourselves and others, and may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three.
This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.